0: Ambition Empower is a professional education program. It's directed towards design leaders and UX professionals interested in upping their game through a continuous learning journey that engages you in small chunks every week during your membership. Find out more by visiting uxpodcast.com empower.
1: UX Podcast Episode 303 Pat Aksboom. And I'm James Royal Dawson. This is UX Podcast. We're in Stockholm, Sweden, and you're listening to us all over the world from Macau to Bulgaria. Steve Fleming is a professor of cognitive neuroscience and runs a neuroscience lab dedicated to the study of self-awareness at University College London. His team, the Metacognition Group, is one of several working within the Welcome Center for Human Neuroimaging, located in an elegant townhouse in Queen Square in London.
0: This whole thing with saying neuro is quite hard, isn't it? Anyway, the basement of their building, um, and I love the fact it's a basement, um, houses (laughs) large machines for brain imaging. And each group in the centre uses this technology to study how different aspects of the mind and brain work. How we see, hear, remember, speak, make decisions, and so on. His research focuses on the science of self-awareness. And last year, Steve published the book, Know Thyself the new science of self-awareness.
1: To set the stage, uh, because this is a design podcast, and as designers, we talk a lot about behavioral science, we talk about cognitive biases, and some designers love applying the ideas of nudging, while others liken this sort of to the removal of autonomy. But can you help us out with an explanation of what metacognition is and how it fits into this broader idea of how we as humans make decisions.
2: Sure. So metacognition literally means cognition about cognition or thinking about thinking. So it's the capacity we have, this weird and wonderful capacity we have as humans to reflect on and know something about the operation of our own minds. So an example of metacognition would be realising that you might not know enough when you're revising for an upcoming exam, for instance. So that's a metacognitive assessment of how much you know, and that has consequences for how we behave. So if we think we don't know enough, we might then continue to study rather than put down the books. And we think metacognition operates across many different um, domains or areas of the mind. So we can think about not only our memories, but also how well we're performing in different areas of life. We can think about whether we've made a good or bad decision. We can think about whether our physical or cognitive capacities might be changing in older age or in disorders, uh, brain disorders, for instance. Um, and in re- relation to decision-making, so an autonomy, we think that it plays a big role in what it means to be a self-aware agentive human being because in a sense being able to endorse reflectively endorse the courses of action that we have chosen and say not only have I made this choice but I want to be doing what I'm doing right now that we think is foundational to autonomy it's not just me that said this quite a few philosophers have made this point that reflectively endorsing our choices might be central to what in folk psychology, we refer to it as free will so this is this is a personal
0: performance evaluation that we you know we do constantly I guess with ourselves
2: exactly exactly so we think that it exists on a local time scale, so you might kind of think to yourself, "Oh I've just forgotten to do something that I should have done this morning for instance that that's a realization self realization that we failed at on some local level but then also you can have metacognitive beliefs that extend over a longer timescale so we might think to ourselves hang on is you know is my vision failing do I need a new pair of glasses that's a metacognitive assessment about a physical uh, capacity so there's various timescales of metacognition but they all share this element of being a self-assessment. So I guess
0: we're, we're not aware of some of them then, because like, I mean, I've just got new glasses because you know, for the first time in a long time, the, my, my kind of base eyesight has kind of changed and, and that's taken me a long time to actually accept, understand, I guess, the concepts of it. So I suppose this, this stuff that's happening constantly, that if I reach out for something, does that mean that if I kind of miss reaching out, then I might not reflect on it at first, but I have kind of somewhere deep down reflected on it.
2: Yeah, so, so I think that the distinction you're drawing there is essentially between what we refer to as implicit or unconscious monitoring. Mm. And some people, there's debate over terminology here. Some psychologists refer to that as unconscious metacognition. Other people say, no, that's not what we mean by metacognition. It's just something that's still monitoring what we're doing, but at a lower unconscious level. It, I think that's just a semantic debate really. But yeah. Essentially the idea which I outline in the book is that we have self-monitoring processes going on at multiple levels within the system so you your actions are constantly being um monitored for uh flow and accuracy so when you an example I like is when you step on a moving escalator your body automatically corrects your posture for that movement and then mm-hmm. if you that that correction can be exposed as being very automatic because if you then step on a stationary escalator your visual system still perceives the escalator and your body starts preparing to make that correction and yet it's not moving anymore so then you get slightly knocked off balance
0: which is that is actually really fascinating that thing because you're you're you know you can see i mean it's it's one of those frustrating <laughs> things it's like come on body i mean i can see it's not moving but you're you've so deeply trained to use that tool as an escalator
2: exactly so we've we've built up this association over the years with that postural correction of stepping on an escalator and mm. the the you can see the the learning process there you know when i take my three-year-old son on an escalator he hasn't learned that yet so he stumbles when it's moving whereas i would stumble when it's stationary so there's that kind of exposure of the learning of self-monitoring at the lower levels yeah. And that's what I refer to as essentially autopilots for the mind. We have this self-monitoring level at an, going on below the surface. It keeps our mental planes flying straight and level. And then at certain points, that self-monitoring process becomes conscious when we start thinking to ourselves, hang on, I've made an error there or I've gone yeah. off
1: track. Or oh, you actually need glasses. <laughs> it's, not th- it's not that they've changed the type in the magazine. And I think in the book you talk about this as making and updating predictions and you, this is related to dopamine, which I'll, I also found fascinating because there's this myth about dopamine that I'm hoping you'll help us kill now.
2: <laughs> yes, so dopamine has often got a popular press for being the reward chemical, but that, that has some truth to it, but it's, it's oversimplifying what dopamine is doing in the brain. I should say, first of all, that we're still learning a lot about what dopamine and other neurotransmitters are doing in the brain. So the story is not... Finished yet. But what we think dopamine is doing is signaling some kind of error on our predictions of what the world is going to be like. And so, an example of this would be if you go into a new coffee shop, you don't know what quality of coffee they're going to serve you, and so your expectations are relatively low, they serve you really good coffee, you would get a positive, uh, what's called a prediction error signal. So, that is Reward in a sense, it feels good to get that good coffee, but it and it's better than you expected it was going to be. So then you get a positive dopamine spike, but then over time, you learn that that's going to be the type of coffee you get from that shop, and there's no error in your expectations anymore. So it's still rewarding to go and get that cup of coffee, but your dopamine won't be signaling any change in your predictions anymore. And this was shown in really amazing experiments by a neuroscientist called Wolfram Schultz, who's now in Cambridge who recorded from dopamine neurons and showed that they showed this prediction error-like signal. And what's really even more fascinating is that that prediction error-like signal is exactly what um, computer scientists have been saying for many years is needed to train reinforcement learning systems. And now these kind of RL reinforcement learning systems are used all the time in artificial intelligence um, programs that learn to play chess and go and so on. So there's a real consilience there between AI research and neuroscience research. I think this is absolutely fascinating with dopamine
0: because from a design perspective, you know, for years now, we've been, there's been this whole talk of delight and kind of like, you know, making experiences that delight the users and, and dopamine's come up in those kind of discussions. And what you're saying to me there though, is because it's a, a re- reward for discovering an, an, an error, then, you know, you're getting dopamine because something is kind of, you know, not what you expected. and that we're painting as a delightful thing. Oh God, the, exactly what you said, the good coffee. But at the same time, you could get just a bigger hit from
2: a poor experience that is as surprising. Well, so it's, it's still signed. So if, if you get a, you can get a negative prediction error. So if I thought it was going to be really good, but now I get poor coffee, my dopamine neurons will then decrease in their response. So it's still a, signed thing so it, it, positive is good and negative is, yeah. is bad but what i think it, it exactly as you say like i think it has implications for how we think about the subjective experience of joy and 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 well-being um and there's some work that a colleague of mine who used to be at ucl he's now at yale uh rob rutledge has been doing to look at people's moment to moment subjective ratings of how happy they feel in an experiment where they're receiving different small rewards where he's tightly controlling in a reinforcement learning framework the expectations they have in that task. And what he's found is that their happiness in the experiment is not l- linked to the long-run wealth that they're accumulating. So they accumulate accumulate more money over time. Instead, it's very tightly linked to this prediction error signal so essentially if you have a certain expectation and that you get more than you expect then you get a bit more happy and and vice versa mm-hmm. and so i think this this matches with everyday experience that we might accumulate more worldly goods but we rapidly then reset our expectations um, yeah. after a while they don't make us happy anymore and we have a certain baseline level expectation. Then we need something that violates that in a positive way to get that kind of spike again.
1: So, what would be the benefits of improving our, uh, I don't know, metacognition skills? Uh, per se? Would that actually improve our well-being or our relationships to other people?
2: It's a good question. So, what link this might have to well-being, I don't think, has been fully unpacked yet. I, I think that. There are certainly um, functional benefits for daily life in terms of how metacognition helps us make better decisions because it helps us to realise we might have um, made an incorrect uh, call and revise that, revisit that. It helps us to temper the um, rigidity of our beliefs by realising that we might not have all the answers and we should listen to other people's opinions. Um, it helps us to um, work together with others because we can collaborate better if we are appropriately sensitive to um, when we might not know the answer to a problem we're working on and we seek the advice of others, for instance. So so it has all these functional benefits that are reasonably well worked out. Um, and we can see in a lot of the work we do in the lab is in collaboration with Um, clinical colleagues working with patients with psychiatric and neurological disorders who often have profound deficits in metacognition and self-awareness and they're not always very detectable in the clinic but they have a profound impact on their daily on people's daily lives because say in the case of dementia for instance you might a patient with dementia might be unaware that they're losing their memory and that has real impact on their decisions to continue to drive or go out to the shops and and so on so the extent to which you can compensate for, say, changes or deficits in cognition and performance is very dependent on metacognition. So that clearly has a functional benefit. But then there's also potentially another side of this coin, which is that if I'm very aware of the potential for getting things wrong, then in theory, that could have a negative consequence. Maybe I engage in more regret or rumination on... Whether things are going well in my life and so on, and I think that connection hasn't been fully explored. It might be mm-hmm. there, but it hasn't been as well unpacked in the sciences mm-hmm. as the benefits of metacognition for for function, for daily life function.
0: So mm-hmm. that's that's the whole thing where you're you're observing the thing, you you are the thing being observed. So it kind of you're impacting yourself with your own, you know, own observations of how you're performing and how you are.
2: Yeah, so, I mean, we do know that it's is, is well established in depression and um, some forms of anxiety that people engage in a lot of rumination. Mm. Um, so the way I, I, I think rumination is connected with metacognition, it relies on similar psychological machinery, but the way I see those being different is that you can think of rumination as being the quantity of metacognition you engage in, how much do I tend to think about myself and my own mind? Whereas the functional benefit of metacognition is not necessarily doing it all the time. It doesn't mean you have to sit around like Radan's thinker and just introspecting all the time. It means that when you need to, you kind of take that reflective stance on how things are unfolding in at work, at home and so on, and then change course accordingly.
1: Because I know you write about how the gains of metacognition are really nothing compared to the downsides of losing it, and that's what you sort of touch upon now. you have also talked a bit about how it helps you understand other people, which also creates this platform for a better, more fair society, perhaps. Uh, and at the same time, uh, what you're also saying a bit now, if, if you're ruminating, that can also lead to losses. And at the same time, as we we we're actually criticizing society today and saying that we don't have enough time for reflection because it, it's this appears to be a luxury. So there's a balance going on here that's really difficult.
2: <laughs> yes, no, there is a balance. I mean, just yeah. to pick up on one thing you said there about yeah. understanding others, yeah, we think that that's another yeah. very um, important component to the way that metacognition provides a platform for social interactions because there's growing evidence that the ability to reflect on and think about ourselves might share neural and cognitive machinery with the capacity to think about other minds, so what psychologists refer to as theory of mind. Um, And it's clear that when you want to engage in a nuanced two-person interaction, when you're collaborating with someone, for instance... You want to be appropriately sensitive to what you bring to the table. So that's metacognition. But you also want to be aware of what the other person's skills and failings might be. So you can navigate that interaction well. And I think this happens all the time in a, in a workplace context. So the effective people are the ones who can kind of go with their own view when they think it's the right thing to do or defer to others when they think that someone else has got a better handle on it.
0: Uh, this this is something I really wanted to bring up now. The, you said theory of mind, or I think you refer to it as mind reading, as well. And from you know, the, from a designer perspective, um, I mean, I was I was kind of struck by that whole idea of mind reading, and and reflected on how how much mind reading I have to do as designer, because you know, it feels like that it's not just kind of collaborating in a team. That when you're designing services, digital services, and, and websites, and so on, then I'm going. I'm having to do a level of mind reading, which is well outside of my my mind, and you know, even outside of the the realm of people I can come in direct contact with.
2: Yeah. So I feel like in especially in creative work where we're trying to think through how someone else will see what we're creating. So. work of fiction or even even the extent to which i i find this happens when i teach that i need to think really hard about what my students view of the world is and try my best to get out of what i know and i find it incredibly difficult and i think a lot of people do that essentially you need to lose your knowledge you need to build a new model of how the world is being seen from someone else's perspective right. and the facility to do that allows you to then, I guess, unlock new experience in in other people because you can then create that new experience, the new way of seeing the world, uncontaminated by your own pre-existing perspective. And I think, you know, the great, the great novelists clearly do this all the time because they, they're able to essentially construct a world that is, brand new from the reader's perspective that is relatively uncontaminated by um the writer's own view of things
0: i, I think i would say the 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 thing there about the feedback as well so connecting mind reading and then the, the errors or updating our, uh, our our models of 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 how well things have worked. And when you're doing that with like a work of fiction, you create an entire book. So you're doing that entire book and putting it out there. And it's like the feedback loop. It must be kind of the same thing, I suppose, with some of the designs we do. We try and do research and and, and testing and so on. But you, you know, is it really, can you really create that loop at such a pace that that means you are doing better and better stuff? Or is it we just failed or we just kind of doomed to fail, but at regular intervals.
2: Yeah, I I mean, I think this is a fascinating issue on how the human mind is able to cope, essentially, without much feedback. And this is where it often separates out from current AI systems. There's lots of progress going on on this in terms of what's known as credit assignment in, in artificial intelligence. Like, how does an AI system play an entire game of chess And then only at the very end do they find out, you know, whether they won or lost. Now, the way to do that is essentially to back up all the values of the individual moves and start attaching value to intermediate steps along the way. And I think metacognition is doing something quite similar in cases, in open-ended cases, where we're not getting feedback until the end of a whole sequence of actions but still, there seems to be these internal prediction errors. So I might set off writing a paper and then get a few paragraphs in and realise, hang on, this is, this is rubbish. But that's my self-assessment. No one's told me it's rubbish, but I'm kind of assessing that. And so I might scrap that and go and do something else. And there's been some lovely work showing that the same mm. types of dopaminergic prediction errors that we talked about earlier, that are driven by external rewards, like drinking the coffee or getting the drop of juice in the experiments are also being driven by internal errors that we make. So this has been studied in songbirds. So when a bird is producing a song, if it makes a mistake, then it gets this little negative dopamine spike. So and the, the way that's, that's experimentally studied is that the, the experiments is kind of amazing setup. They can play mistakes to the bird so the bird thinks like, hang on, I've just screwed up there and, and you get a little negative dopamine um, drop. So it seems like there's a common system that is trying to predict whether we're going to get things, whether we're going to get rewards. And those rewards include internal feedback that we're giving ourselves. And I think that's exactly what you need when you're embarking on something over that's going to take a very long time, like writing a book where you're not going to get feedback from the outside world for a long time, but you've got to constantly be thinking through, hang on, is this on the right track? Am I going to get this positive response from my reader for this? Yeah, so we're, yeah, so we're running predictions
0: constantly. So even though the longer game, maybe we can't get an, an end result, we're, we're, we're looping you know, a, a mind-bogglingly large number of times all the time. getting feedback and and correcting
2: exactly yeah and and in the case of something that requires theory of mind so that that's then layered on top of that so yeah you know in the case of um writing out a lecture or writing a a book you're not only creating a prediction about whether you think this is good you're trying to predict whether someone else is going to think this is good
1: i do want us to to touch a bit upon uh ai (laughs) because i know you, you allude to it throughout the book actually about how ai is unconscious and inexplicable and you have this suggestion of with uh, with for example self-driving cars to actually make the ai have confidence levels so it could actually doubt itself which is something is it's really intriguing when you think about a system that has no self-awareness
2: yeah so confidence is something that in ai and robotics research is being pursued um with with vigor at the moment including in the realm of self-driving cars and the aim there is not necessarily to replicate human metacognition and to somehow create a self-aware robot instead it's to give it this minimal implicit form of confidence estimation and to do that in a more graded way and so it is a difficult problem because especially in ai systems where you're training on some data set and then you see a new problem, say a self-driving car goes into a new neighbourhood it's never driven in before, then it's quite difficult to make well-calibrated predictions about what you're seeing. So it might, rather than saying, you know, I'm not sure what to do at this intersection, a lot of um, the problems and the concerns around self-driving algorithms today has been that they often overconfidently classify something and make a mistake and just plow on regardless and so the the aim there would be to create systems that essentially are able to recognize when they don't know what's going on and then either just shut down or hand back control to the to the human and so that notion of kind of collaboration based on confidence is something that we're pursuing with colleagues at the Oxford Robotics Institute at the moment and they're heavily involved in developing these kind of technologies for self-driving cars. So it's not, the goal is not to make a self-aware robot, although, you know, maybe one day that will happen, but more to build in a minimal form of metacognition into these systems.
1: It made me realize that, I mean, we don't even have to talk about AIs, but actually as we build websites and digital technology, we are making assumptions all the time about what the user wants next, but we could be much better at actually designing in doubt in that, I believe this is what you want next, but always allow the user to communicate back that no, that's actually not what I wanted. So the website itself becomes almost like a chat interface, but <laughs> in a different way. So always be able to, to uh, be aware that what you assumed about the user isn't always right. Well, really what James was talking about because we're making assumptions and mind reading constantly. <laughs>
0: I mean, we do actually, I think about it, I mean, but there are some situations where we already do that kind of, um, oh, maybe it's not kind of um, doubt of what we want to do, but a classic thing would be like a buy button. And, yeah. and maybe you're underneath you would offer another way of, of, of dealing with that interaction. So you, maybe someone's not ready to buy something, but they kind of want to learn more. So you'd put like a, maybe you'd put like a link or something underneath in the proximity to that button to kind of give a second choice of thing. So I suppose that's some way of mopping up that they're, maybe not everyone's ready to buy and that maybe there's a second level thing there. Or I guess that's related to what you're saying.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I think that the idea that providing a little bit of gradedness in our interactions with autonomous technology in terms of sharing confidence and uncertainty, we think could be quite powerful in in, in enabling trust. Right. Uh, this is work that we're doing at the moment. We haven't got uh, much data on it yet, but the hypothesis would be that one concern people have at the moment is that recommender systems and, and assistance and, and this kind of stuff feels quite brittle and we've seen that in the debate over the l- large language models recently that they seem to do some smart things but then you can break them quite easily often um and allowing a bit more allowing that system to admit it's doesn't know and that it's uncertain could then help us trust when it does produce an answer yeah. rather than just thinking hang on that could be another example of it producing nonsense if, if if, it can signal that in many scenarios it will tell you that it doesn't know the answer but when it does tell you the answer then you can be confident that it's giving you a reasonable piece of advice that that we hope could in, increase trust.
1: That's so interesting I love that because I mean that's how we interact with humans as well because if, if someone is overconfident and always saying that they're right and correct you trust them less.
2: <laughs> exactly so yeah so we already have data from mm-hmm. on human metacognition where people mm-hmm. do Tend to you know be very sensitive to admissions of um, doubt in others. That helps you trust statements of when they are confident. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I know, you, I know, I shouldn't ask another question, but I can't resist it. The, the um,
0: of this whole thing, though, this this dilemma we've got. I guess that I mean the the work you're doing, Steve, and, and the things we're talking about here with metacognition just shows how far or how not far we've come, I guess, in understanding that lump of grey matter inside our schools. And, and at the same time now, we've got global computing systems and global algorithms and stuff that's that's steering our lives. Uh, you know, i get getting a bit nervous when we kind of ram, I'm excited and, and I think it's fascinating the stuff to do with metacognition and mind reading and theory of mind and so on. But, oh my God. <laughs> That kind of you know dilemma now when we're facing rolling out all these massive um, algorithms when we we we're, they don't have the feedback mechanism they don't have the metacognition,
2: yeah no, I mean, and also yeah it, it, we haven't talked so much about the the human brain, but it, it's absolutely true that I mean a lot of work we do in our lab is basic science on using brain imaging technologies to try and understand how metacognition works um at a relatively coarse scale, so we use non-invasive imaging like functional MRI to look at different regions of the brain and the patterns of activations there when people are engaged in these kind of self-assessments. And it's complicated. There's, you know, it's a distributed system. It's not straightforward to understand what different parts of that network are doing. And that's a lot of the ongoing work we're doing in our lab. But I think what is increasingly becoming clear is that facility faculties like metacognition just the capacity to have conscious experience and to communicate that experience to others this is not the same thing as being smart and being intelligent so consciousness and intelligence used to we used to think back in you know 50 years ago a lot of psychologists would have put those two things hand hand in hand And that was the origins of, say, the Turing test, the idea that, like, you know, you can, from Alan Turing's proposal, that a machine can pass, is is essentially met the bar for being human like if you can have a conversation with it and it can mimic being human. Now, large language models can essentially do that now, but that bar has now shifted. And I think part of the reason that bar has now shifted is that we recognize, as a field, as a society, that what it means to be conscious and to be self aware is actually very different to running a lot of numbers and then coming up with a plausible answer um, and so I think the big frontier in AI and neuroscience going forward is going to be to understand what is missing from that um, picture and and why and I, I don't think we should necessarily be seek- seeking to build that consciousness aspect into the machines if we find out what it is but I think we need to be sensitive To that difference, can I? I'm going to finish off. I think this is actually taken from
0: your 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 book, um, Steve. Our perception of the world is a controlled hallucination, a best guess of what is out there, and and I think that 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 is a really nice kind of reassurance that you know controlled. I don't know. Maybe some people find it scary, but a controlled hallucination. But that's kind of what we're living through, isn't
2: it? Yeah. So that yeah, that's a quote from. Anil Seth's book, uh, "Being You," which is also uh, highly, I would highly recommend it, is more focused on consciousness and um, essentially how you know what 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 constructs this this experience we have of the outside world. But I think it's increasingly becoming clear from neuroscience that we don't just passively perceive; where the brain is not just a passive recipient of sensory data from the eyes and from the ears and so on, we actively construct um, what is out there based on our experience. Um, and I think that does provide a, a pretty humbling picture of the world. It means that we only see a very narrow slice of reality and that reality is different for everybody.
1: Yeah. I love how that made me feel. It was like when I'm lying outside looking up at space and it's just infinite. And that what you just said made me feel like looking in towards my brain and that's infinite. <laughs> which is fantastic. Thank you so much Steve. This has been wonderful.
2: It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much. I'm still
0: reflecting on I just I'm not I'm struggling to put things into words because of the fact that I just think it's really really mind-blowing. Um, mind-blowing when we're talking about minds. There's the whole thing as designers just not only, I mean, the amount of self-reflection we do or should be doing, but this whole thing of of how much mind reading we do, how many simulations we we produce and run all the time with all the design work that we do. I mean, we're, yeah. we're constantly having to um, project and imagine how our um, how our users will think and behave when they meet our designs.
1: And even when we see how they meet our designs, we are interpreting where their behavior and their thoughts and what they're saying constantly all the time as well
0: yeah yeah so I mean, we just because okay it's one thing when you're doing mind reading of um people that you are that you know you know people in your team there you're doing a constant amount of mind reading projections about okay how will they respond when i present this design suggestion to them mm-hmm. how how will they respond when i when i you know do x or y in my team um but when we move you know, a degree away from that. And then we're talking about how will a manager that I've, you know, of some kind of um, um, key person in my organization that I've never met, how will they respond? And maybe my understanding yeah. of how they respond is based on other people's projections who've been shared with me. And then we get onto, you know, another level away from that, our actual users that, maybe we meet maybe we don't meet maybe we just meet them through an ab test or or some kind of like analytics interface so you're you're projecting then how they will respond and behave with your interface
1: so yeah so what i'm realizing there we we, we are aware that the more we learn or the more i know the less i know because so we're diving into this topic with steve and he's actually explaining a lot of the stuff of how the brain works. And he goes into depth on that in the book. Uh, but what that makes me realize is I know less. <laughs> I know more about that area, but I now know less about how other people function. Because it's I'm realizing so much, becoming so aware of how all of the things I'm doing constantly are just my interpretations. It's just what I'm seeing is not reality. It can only exist because I'm thinking it. Yeah.
0: The reality you experience, Per, is individually. It's your reality.
1: Right. So uh, thinking about it, it's it's not always good to become this aware because what it means is I'm supposed to, in like in a client situation or when I'm selling my services, be really, really confident in that if we do this based on research, this this other thing will happen. That's sort of what I'm promising. That's sort of hmm. my profession. Uh but the more I understand about how our brains work, the less confident I become. Yeah.
0: And, and the more you realize that, you know, we're, we're looking for things that the, 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 the person we're communicating with will expect to be heard. <laughs> so, we're, so we're constantly, you know, circling around um, a shared thing or trying to get to a shared thing.
1: Exactly. And I think a really good example of this is is something that he also has an example in his book is about uh, we sort of know because we talk about this in UX uh, about eyewitness reports. Uh, So if you have an eyewitness report, trusting that becomes really, really difficult depending on the situation and context and the amount of time that has passed since the event happened. Uh, And you have to realize that what we are experiencing with users as well are eyewitness reports. They are telling us about their experiences but how true are they and how are they affected by our questions and our, our reasoning? And if there are other people involved, are they affected by those people as well?
0: It reminds me of, of um, all the eye tracking I used to do years ago um, mm-hmm. that, you know, the way, where way I did research of eye tracking was that you record someone using or doing a task, but you wouldn't talk to mm-hmm. them and wouldn't interrupt them while they were doing it. And then you'd play the recording back to them. So you could, they could see their own gaze across a website and they, they'll be surprised many times of, of what they'd looked at and how many times or how, you know, how much attention they paid certain things on the page. Cause mm. their subconscious, well, their subconscious had dealt with mm. it, not their conscious.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, so it was always interesting to have a dialogue around, um, you know, I suppose they were theorizing of why they looked at that thing and what their subconscious was doing. Um, but um, mm. yeah, so much at, um, at work here that we're not fully in control of.
1: I just realized that this is something that he also has written about in his book. This paradox wherein uh, to trust someone and see them as a leader and and inspiring others to follow your lead means that you have, have this image of really highly confident assertiveness. But that's not what makes you a good leader because what makes you a good leader is the ability to reflect and understand these things that we've been talking about today, uh, which means that you need to sort of hide that part of yourself, that you are always doubting everything and in your outward profile. I'm sort of hoping, based on our episode talking about uh, yeah. imposter syndrome, talking about also about being introverts and how that's a good leadership skill, uh, that perhaps this image of how you have to be to be a good leader is changing? Really hoping. <laughs> well, it has we to, to. But based we've, got, on this. we've got layers yeah. and
0: layers, mm. and, and maybe even yeah. centuries mm. of mm. expected behaviour that's been mm. baked into our our, our minds. Um, yeah. That needs to be unpacked. God, yeah. being a designer is a hard job. Maybe being a brain surgeon is easier. <laughs> 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 Recommended listening, power.
1: Oh, you've picked a, a good book here for a recommended listening. I mean, I mentioned imposter syndrome and uh, that other one that I just forgot which one I mentioned, but you have picked out uh, 245 cognitive bias with David Dylan Thomas. Yeah,
0: it was a wonderful chat with David and the um yeah. and yeah, this episode is explaining more of of things related to cognitive bias um, on a on a neuroscience level. Um, and that conversation with um, with David um, is is Practical, I think, for designers. Yes. Dealing with biases.
1: Exactly. That's a good one to to feel more confident that it it is, you you can do the right thing.
0: We can work with it. And if you'd like to contribute to um, to funding or producing UX Podcast, then visit uxpodcast.com slash support. um, Or just email us or something and say, hey, I'd like to
1: help out. Remember to keep moving.
0: See you on the other side. a brain say hello
1: i don't know james how does a brain say hello
0: with a brain wave (laughs) god being a designer is a hard job